This is the audio podcast episode 116, Fixing Cables on the 27th of May 2014. I'm Samuel Freeman, that's Scott Hewitt. We have Adam Yanch here as well. It it is May. It's, yeah, it's been a bank holiday weekend, but I didn't even notice until halfway through the Monday. (laughs) There you go. And of course, you're... uh, uh, you're listening to us by the power of the internet. You can get in contact with us in a number of ways. Uh, Twitter's a, a decent one at the Audio Podcast. Show at the Audio Podcast if you like your email, and you can also catch up with the podcast by iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Gpodder, and YouTube, where we do a live video thing via a hangout. That's very nice, isn't it? And for those people who um, are l- looking at the YouTube, you get to see Scott Hewitt's enormous headphones today. Oh, yeah. Back got... to vintage, vintage headphone time. <laughs> there we go. I feel left out because I'm the only one not wearing white headphones today. I'm rocking out full vintage. It's awesome. Don't forget, of course, <laughs> you can head you can head to the audiopodcast.co.uk forward slash show forward slash 116 catch the notes and these are the notes that we use during the show let's get the show started gents news at at, at the top of the news uh, uh, Softube have announced an update to console 1 to version 2.8 which resolves some sleep mode issues as in the computer going to sleep possibly possibly the computers can do some funny things with their USB when Sleeping and waking up, can they? So, mm. you know, yeah. I'm actually surprised that audio stuff is so resilient to sleeping. Because I remember it being a nightmare about ten years ago. You couldn't put your computer to sleep when you're doing anything audio because you'd have to reboot. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it interestingly, actually, just taking a quick look here, um, it's version 2.18, and in actual fact, version 2.18 is now the new is now the new default version. So they're saying that for um, version 2.18 of the software is required for console one units purchased after today. So uh-huh. it's obviously uh, it's, it is a significant it is a significant software change. Awesome, and that's that's today. That is yeah, that's today's date. Amazing. Okay, new news. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do we have some more updates? I think we got some more updates. We do. That's we have. Um, Nuendo. Steinberg have released Nuendo version 6.5. So that is not what the story says, so I'm trying to... Is it not? What are they saying then? Uh, Oh, it's an update. It's due in the final quarter. Sorry, I'm not looking at the notes. I'm failing here. I've just got the um, product page open. Uh, But final quarter, what does that mean, Scott? Because, you know, quarters can run... A final quarter could be any time. Really, it doesn't necessarily mean between uh, October, November, or December. It means uh, some point in the future. Okay. Fine. Um, the... It's kind of like a logic update. There will be one at some point in the future. No, it's not like a logic update at all because this has been announced and they have been updating Nuendo, you know, fairly regularly. Whereas the logic one just came out of nowhere. No one knew that it was going to come at any particular time. There it was big, though. It was big. It was big. It was big. <laughs> and you heard about it here on the audio podcast, yeah. And of course, so, so that is the story. Is, is, is that 
There isn't a new endo. There is an update to new endo on its way, due in the final quarter of 2014. It the software has been seen in has been seen at some trade conferences, and so there are you know people have played with it in a kind of controlled environment, and it is on its way sort of stuff. So excellent. They've um, the grace period for purchases is now in effect as well. So if you if you were to buy a new the current Uendo version, Uendo 6, then you would get a free upgrade to 6.5 from now. So, so that, that means this is a this would be a paid upgrade if you already have, well, if you bought it before the 14th of April. Yeah, that is that, that is the suggestion. That also makes me think that they expect it to be, they must expect it to be reasonably soon. I was surprised it said the final quarter because I thought if you're going to, if you're going to start offering a paid upgrade period from now, then you would think it was you know, August. Well, that's why I say, what is the final, is it their final quarter? Does their final quarter end in July or something? Um, Not sure. Maybe, but I, I, my, my impression was that this is more likely going to be September, October sort of time. Is okay. Impression that I, I guess they just want to make people aware that it's here as an option because um, Avid have been doing a big push on their whole range of things which people associate well, I personally associate with audio post production and I often forget that because I you know I think about Cubase but I forget about New Endo as the kind of audio post production counterpart yeah. to it and there are quite a few um, feature upgrades in 6.5 as well and looking down the list you can find the list of them uh, that we've put in the notes at the audio podcast.co.uk forward slash show forward slash 116 the one that really catches my eye is track versions. So I'm used to like uh, session versions, as it were, uh, or alternatives they're called in Logic. But I think Cubase already had those. Um, but track versions allow for creating, renaming, and managing parallel versions of the same track. Uh, so that's a that's a cool little kind of granularity thing, you know, applying that same idea to the track. I think that's cool. Oh, that's cool. No, it looked like a good. Yeah. I, I, it looks like a solid update for New Endo, which is. I was trying to remember when, just as you guys were talking, I was trying to remember when the last New Endo update was, and it it was a while ago, but not actually not a ridiculous length of time. So it's good that, you know, it's still definitely active and something that they feel they've got more things to do with, isn't it? So it's mm. cool. And it does it does seem that Steinberg are actually quite busy, because. Not only is there a Nuendo update coming, there's also a Cubasis update. Ah, so <clears throat> for all you iPad users out there, you can get the. It's just just it's a minor update, this isn't it? But it fixes some things. I'm getting confused now about what we're looking at. Sorry, someone take this quick. I'm failing. Okay, so, so it's going up to version 1.8. So that's the uh, Cubasis is of course now the iOS. Uh, version of Cubase, so it's not like the uh, the bargain basement version that used to become uh, bundled with all your audio stuff. Uh, and you get some uh, decent updates, including Audio Bus 2 support, a redesigned effect rack, um, yeah, you know, a bunch of stuff. And automation yeah, is the significant new feature, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's actually auto. It's not just some. Little update to automation. It's actually automation. 
That's good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Something I also found interesting when I was looking, um, obviously you can find you can find the link to the full release and with all the minor details of it if you want. Um, something that I did put into the story because I thought it was interesting is there was a clear set of minimum system requirements as well. So it's um, iOS 6.0.1 and it actually tells you what the polyphony of the devices is going to be as well. So um, so for iPad 2, 48 voices, for an iPad 4, iPad generation 4, 64 voices and a mini will do 48. Okay, that's not bad. Mm-hmm. That's quite cool. And it also gives you the uh, project import compatibility information as well if you're wanting to go to Cubase, Cubase Artist, Cubase LE, AI, Element 6, or Cubase LE, AI, Element 7. Mm. I always forget how many different versions of Cubase there are. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the AI is what used to be Cubasis. So you, like Adam was saying, if you bought a sound card or something, it came bundled with software, you would have got Cubasis in the olden days, but these days you get the AI. Oh. So there you go. Uh, Steinberg, is, busy. Well done, Steinberg. I think it's, I think it's great that, yeah, the the iPad equivalent of um, the iPad counterpart for Logic is just a control surface for real time use. Whereas with Cubasis, you can actually create the an outline of a track and then import it into the full version on your computer for further work. It is. It is actually usable standalone. Yeah, but then the iPad has um, the Apple version is GarageBand, so um, I think the Logic, the Mini app is really just a control surface. That's not really directly comparable. Yeah, true. And can you go from GarageBand iPad app in um, if you recorded something in there? Can you import it directly to Logic Pro? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big part of being able to start something on GarageBand and then upgrade it. Cool. Mm. So the story I was getting mixed up with when I started on Cubasis was the minor update which has happened to the Propellerhead's rack extension A-list guitarist, acoustic guitarist, um, which Adam and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think, and they're now on, it's now 1.0.1, where they have fixed a few things, including the tuning is now correct if you change the sample rate, which I think is a great one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, some stuff. Cool. And also, um, another thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the, um, did we ever decide how to pronounce this, but investors have backed uh, Raleigh, which is the maker of the Seaboard Instruments. Yeah, well, yeah, we discussed it on show 112. Mm-hmm. Good work, Sam. Good show, good show note there. <laughs> I, I, had, I had this. I think it would be Roly, because Raleigh would technically have two L's. I mean, I, I read it as Roly, yeah. So, yeah, came across this um, at the beginning of the week, and... It's a, it's a load of money that have been invested in it. Like, so, yeah, big backing. And it's not just for increasing production on the current line of um, seaboard, keyboard instrument things, but also for further developing new products and their software. Because, as we said, it is a control surface, but it's also got its own built-in synthesis engine. And the this article that we've linked to suggests that they want to further develop that Synthesis engine to be able to be used by other 3D controllers. Yeah, and that was the that was the thing I was reminded of um, because we talked about it, and I was because you can do polyphonic pitch bend on this. Yeah. It, the keys are not delineated like a normal keyboard, so you can move your finger across multiple keys, but you can actually do that with multiple fingers. And the problem with that being that what supports polyphonic 
pitch bend or pitch change information. And not very many things would because keyboards can't do it. You have the, the master dial or control to pitch bend everything, but not individual notes. So yeah, I suppose, you know, that's going to be the, the, the thing that will be tough will be integrating this controller into a new, in, into stuff so people can use stuff that they already know, I'd say. Yeah, but I think that it's I think it's great that they're really pushed on this and that it's being invested in because it is it is a bit of a kind of it's a really musically it's something that you want to be able to do. And we've kind of been held back by the whole MIDI paradigm that exists in some respects, you know. And there are other controllers that are able to create this type of data. So I think that if some kind of convention or some sort of agreement can be agreed on <laughs> going forward to make more of this stuff available. I think that'd be brilliant. Mm -hmm. So th this is a lot of money, isn't it? It's 7.6 million pounds. Yep. 12.8 million dollars. And it's an interesting lineup of people as well. It's the people behind Sonos, SoundCloud, Universal Music, Cobalt, Cobalt Music, who are also a label, also a representing label as well. And yeah, that is um. Quite a uh, collection of quite a collection of established names and successful names in there as well. That's quite interesting. As a congratulations mm -hmm. to Rolly. Yeah. And yeah, well, we go back what in time. Go on. We're not in a bubble. That's it. That's it's important. Yeah. <laughs> That's the VC joke at the moment. We're not in a bubble. There we go. Cool. You were you were gonna, were you going to say something? Or were you just, yeah. Well, well, that brings us to. Earlier in the week, we go back in time with our news notes. So that brings us to the end of the news. It does. Yes. It does. So but I believe, despite the fact that it's not in the notes, we are actually going to have a a plunder. A, a sorry, an other item. That's true. And not only are we having an other item, we're going to have an other item which will never make it into the notes. So this is for podcast list, podcast listeners only. Mm. And this is just to tell you a little incident that happened to me last week. So. Um, last week I was sitting at my desk and my rack, my my rack which has my rig in, uh, turned itself off, and I thought that was quite, quite weird. It just completely powered down, and I thought, ah, disaster. Turned it, so I hit the switch, you know, to the off position on it all, and then turned it back on, and thought to myself, maybe that'd be, you know, maybe it'll just work because sometimes it does. And lo and behold, it did, it just worked. And then uh, a, a few hours later, it stopped working again. And it and it just kept turning itself on and off, but fortunately I wasn't doing anything particularly critical at the time, so I just kind of battled through with it. And then um, I I decided just to make a couple of little investigations. So what I did was I went into the I I took the plug off the extension cable because I I'd started rewiring I'd rewired the electronics inside the electricals inside it, and then went to the external plug, took it off, and lo and behold discovered that the plastic coating around the neutral cable inside the plug had completely failed and was just kind of like you could just rub it and all of the uh, all of the coating came off the cable they got completely so the reason i mention this is to is because i suspect that a lot of our listeners and perhaps even yourselves will have fix installed mains extensions which have been in place for many many years and you probably don't look at it all because i certain that was the situation here Th this rack has been built wired in for probably seven to eight, actually no, probably ten years, it could actually be ten years now, so stuff like that, and I'd never even thought to check the mains plug, ever, 
in that entire period. So quite often, every now and again, I take time to take it apart and to clean the contacts on the patch bay and to to reseat the cables to make sure they're fine and you know kind of things like that. And it's amazing how many cables apparently get damaged inside a rack where they never get outside of it. So it's you know it's this experience tells me that. But I'd never thought to check the mains plug, the mains plugs ever before until I saw this fault. So that's just something to recommend to people is that if you have a if you have a rack which has like a, a 4x4 extension plugged into it and you've never checked the condition of the main socket in a decade, it's probably a good idea to check the inside of the plug and just see what the situation actually is. Because this would have been, without wanting to make it sound over dramatic, there was the beginnings of a serious house fire in the mains plug. So, there we go. There you go, disaster averted. Indeed so. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought that was worth mentioning. There you go. It's, so um, should we all go and check our extension cable plugs now? I think but we will. Maybe... I'm, I'm going to um, certainly retire some of the most, actually some of my newest additions. I, I cheaped out buying some extensions, and they are a bit dodgy. I, when you plug things in, they kind of, it kind of it makes an audible sound when you plug <laughs> the power in, which isn't a good sign. And... Um, yeah, I've been kind of kind of ignoring it, thinking oh, as long as no one kicks it while it's in operation, I'm sure it'll be fine. But mm, yep, power supply. Mm. It's all electrical stuff we're doing. Without electricity, the audio doesn't flow. Yeah. Whoa. Awesome. Shall we go into Shall we go into the plunder? Yes. Yar. 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 Here we go. So first of all, uh, running off the BBC News article, a article about running off the BBC News article, running off the BBC News site, an article about how Radio One choose their playlist editions every week. So this is a Guardian.com oh. story, where a reporter went in and sat in on the board meeting that discusses what will be on the A list and B list and C list for tunes that will be played repeatedly during the week on Radio 1, which is the largest radio station in the UK, I believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's an interesting article. It's pretty long, actually, I felt like. But, but it is interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I, I thought it was... You know, it was... Yeah. It's interesting that a, a lot of the selection doesn't have anything to do with the traditional music metrics and has far more to do with how many YouTube video hits a particular song will have. As a as as a thing like that, and they were talking about kind of Twitter retweets and you know like this this was a metric they would they would now consider so mm -hmm. you know which I, which I thought was interesting as a you know I mean, well it makes sense that they were using this sort of these other sort of metrics available to make these sort of decisions. So it makes cool. it sound like a pretty much a full time job. People working on this this issue it isn't something they sit down once a week and do it. It's an ongoing process. They have. Um, there was the question was brought up about independent labels getting access to it, and there is, yeah, pluggers is the like people who contact and they have proportional amount of time available for people to come in and see them. So they give more time to talk to the big labels because they have more repertoire apparently. But any small label wanting to speak to radio ones should just contact them and say we've got something that you should hear, and they may be open to that. And is there a mechanism to allow the DJ to actually choose some tracks of their own within their show? Yeah, the way that the playlists work is, I think, I'm looking for the exact numbers now, but I think that an A-list tune would be played 
maybe 50 times a week and a B list less than a C list 10 times a week. Can't find the numbers right now. I should do control F. Um, yes, and also the producers, while there is a team on the, while there is a team who are responsible for collating the list of possible tracks, the in the show producers also also get a say in terms of how the possible tracks would integrate into their in, into their shows as well. So, so okay. while, while while the kind of on air while, while the kind of on air presenting talent for one, for one, well, I guess that is actually the right phrase don't aren't in the meeting arguing over what songs they get to play. Their production team is represented in that in that meeting, and gives that kind of input saying this isn't a song that we could ever play on our. You know, you know, they can give that input to say we would never be able to play this, or we yes, we could play this, or is it really worth playing because it doesn't really? You know, I mean, they can have that sort of discussion about those things as well. So, that's so the playlist statistics are: A list records get played 25 plays a week, B list 15, and C list 8 to 10 plays a week. So if you're on a C list, you're going to be played um, once or twice a day, whereas so, if you're on the other list, you're going to get played more than twice a day. Surely this whole system completely makes pointless having a singles chart in the first place because it's not the singles chart is not organic it's not like uh, it's not like oh this this tune got to the top because actually people wanted to hear it it's actually got to the top because say radio stations have said oh we're going to play this track a certain number of times during the week and it's just like, well, why bother having a singles chart? That's always been the case, though, Adam. That's always been the case. But in a way, you could say that now, because the playlist decision makers are taking into account things like YouTube hits and Facebook likes, that there is a bit more kind of public input to it compared to what there ever was in the past. Yeah. But it's popular music is an industry. It's business. It's it's all about advertising. Could get a machine. There was a there was a scandal. Well, that's not really a scandal. It's a, a business practice, inverted commas, of uh, boosting your SoundCloud plays by actually paying a company like thirty dollars, and they'll, I don't know, they must have some bots or something that can go and play SoundCloud tracks and artificially boost the the play count. Now the play count might not mean anything within SoundCloud, but External apps or external services might use those numbers to decide, or people also might use those numbers to decide where, uh, whether to feature something or whether to play something more or play it at all. Um, so you can't even rely completely on those kinds of things, even though I'd say if something was really popular, it would automatically get more plays. That's a really dumb thing I just said. <laughs> but yeah, I, I know I see what you're what you're getting at. That there is, you know, twi twi Twitter retweets and YouTube plays and stuff like that um, are a kind of connection with an audience. But you know what YouTube does to get featured on within YouTube? It's about comments. It's not about plays. You need to get a certain number of, well, this was maybe a few years ago. I don't know if they still do it. You need to get a certain number of comments on your video within a certain time frame after you've posted it. 
and that kind of gives an indication of it being popular, being able to reach people quickly. So, well, that's so that's kind of aside from this from this uh, whole thing. But I, to me, it just start that whole. I don't listen to the radio, and I kind of don't listen to it for these reasons because I don't listen to music on the radio because it it just doesn't seem like it's uh, an actual fair system. It's controlled by the music labels and the more powerful music labels to have the power to get their music played more. And we, we talked about those uh, the scamming of SoundCloud in uh, show 80, 86. Look at that. There you go. Ah, is that. I saw your video hang for a bit. Was that you loading up old pages? Is that... <laughs> but that was me quickly, quickly pounding through the website to find the to find it. Very good. I think, well, maybe one last thing to comment was that it does raise within this article that there is the criticism of, because the BBC is kind of, is funded in a certain way and is supposed to be non-commercial and all this kind of thing. And there's the, there is an argument sometimes made that, well, why is, because of the very commercial nature of BBC Radio 1, why, why is it on the BBC? Why can't we just let that be done through commercial radio? And they counter that by saying, things which are in the article and you can find them there I should... does it it's, make the they... bbc money no it's it's that although it is still a very commercial thing it's they they are able to promote things and have an input into making things popular it wouldn't be otherwise and it does give although we're talking about the um the a-list b-list playlists of commercial tunes in between those songs there is a lot of radio broadcasting going on that wouldn't happen anywhere else. So, and it ends, the article ends, or pretty much ends with a John Peel quote, which, I mean, which sums it up, I think. Mm. But what, what I thought was interesting, or at least it, it intrigued my mind, it would be, it'd be really interesting to hear about how radio, say Radio 2, or somebody like 6 Extra, how they do this, because ra the Radio 1 way of doing it was, kind of what I suspected it would be and seems the most manageable way of dealing with how do you take a near infinite supply of music and choose what you're going to play. But if you think of somebody like Radio 2 who play a lot of music, a lot of different music, I re I've always wondered how they deal with that problem. Because I, I know they tend to have more genre-based shows so you get kind of you know various, various shows across, like even something as extreme as The Organist Entertains. At, at, at some point, but I always wondered what sort of, you know, how they go from every piece of music that exists in the world and then somehow make a selection for the kind of breakfast show. Cause it... Well, it, that's what DJ's for. <laughs> that's that's as, as, as easy an answer as I can give, I reckon. And particularly, because uh, I know that Radio 6 is very popular and Radio 6, or 6 Music it's called, um, a big part of that is the DJs, like you tune into a particular DJ because you know that that person is the filter. That person filters the tunes and has a kind of, definitely through like Twitter and the social networks, has a really close uh, or a closer relationship with the audience. But they are the, it's the human kind of quality and maybe that kind of system is a bit fairer in a way and why Radio 6 is very popular because actually it's more about what somebody, like what a DJ wants to play and what they recommend people listen to. I suppose they probably have to put in some featured 
stuff. They certainly do. I went through a phase of listening to Radio 6, and you could spot after, you know, if you listen at different points of the day over a couple of days, you, you can hear, oh, there's that tune again. That must be on their playlist, or, you know. Yeah. It's probably not quite... I reckon the DJs probably have more control of, over their shows in, on Radio 6. They can actually say, okay, fine, we'll have to play that, we'll have to play that, but we can play this and this. And, you know, they're, they're quite genre-based, and, you know, that's... That's how they do it. There's no point in saying, "Oh, here's a, here's a, you know, millions of tracks you could choose from. How are we going to do it?" That's what the DJ is for. Easy. Yep. Easy as chips. Fair mm. enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Shall we move on to to the final item of plunder for today? We should something completely different. Indeed. So so this is a random. Um, this in my random travels, this came to me. Um, I pre- I presume the name is Rud. Rudger Meyer, I guess there. Rudger um, Meyer. Rudger Meyer put a a blog post up on his personal site, which is about his experience of using LilyPond. Um, which for people who don't know what LilyPond is, LilyPond is a musical notation typesetter, which comes from the kind of late from the Tex, or perhaps people would know LaTeX better, um, or LaTeX, depending on how you like to pronounce it, kind of family and set of ideas. So it goes from a a, a kind of score of ASCII characters and converts it into a into traditional Western notation from that point on. Mm-hmm. So if you've wanted to make music notation using your text editor, then LilyPond is the kind of tool that you're quite likely to use. And it is the back end of quite a few um quite quite a few other engines that make kind of mu- musical you know that, that, that make... sounds like it's right up your street, Scott. Right up your street. <laughs> I haven't read all of this, but it seems like a fairly comprehensive article that talks about a lot of different aspects of that workflow. So is that what this article is? Basically, I have to admit, I I didn't get around to fully reading this one because it's got it's it's got a fairly technical edge to it, and I think it's a good one to sit down and really get into, and get the kind of stuff. But is is that effectively what it's about? Is is a kind of yeah, he he talks about the practicalities of getting into of of getting into Lilypon and the ideas. I'm saying when when you say it has a technical edge to it, one of the um, one of the subheadings is standalone versus integrated development environments. <laughs> Xcode or something else. Yeah. <laughs> or something else. Yeah. Xcode. But he the the author also talks about working um, with. MIDI files through Ableton Live and that kind of stuff being a part of his what he does. So yeah. So suppose oh okay so I can I could see then that something like say Max MSP could generate. So is MIDI pond MIDI pond is Lily pond like JSON or XML or something like that? It's more like Markdown or or LaTeX or HTML. Okay. It's more like that. I know. I think Mark. I think Markdown's a good is is the best is the best example. So you do you do things like um. So say if you wanted to have well, like the illustration he gives is that you have uh, C4, gives you a crotchet C, and then you can follow it with another letter D, which will give you a crotchet D, and then E crotchet E, and then C crotchet C, and then convention dictates you put a pipe symbol in to show the bar line, but it isn't required. It, if you've already told it you're in full four, it will just bar line up automatically. Okay. So, so it's if, more if you about wanted... formatting than it is about necessarily displaying notation. Yep, it's a it's a plain text 
human readable description of what the score will look like once it's been made. So you you describe how to write how to draw the score, and then the program so, right. draws so it. Right. So in the way that Markdown is a way of of, of yes. adding formatting to text, this is a way of basically uh, providing the graphical typesetting information for a score. Yes. So it's not, it's not then it's not useful as a way of transmitting the actual data of the score like say there must be an XML or a JSON style thing. Well, you can convert the if if I understand your query correct, you can convert LilyPond to MIDI. You can convert LilyPond data to MIDI data. Okay. Because it's the I, same. Uh, how how can I put this? Like, here, here's the best illustration I think that would probably work for you. LilyPond tells you how long the note is going to be at the point you play the note, whereas MIDI data tells you when the note will stop playing, and that is the fundamental difference between the two forms. That is okay. In in terms of in in terms of why would I use one and not the other from a programmatic from a human programmatic point of view, that is the different. That's the biggest difference between the formats. So if you're writing a piece of music and you want to say, and, and you want to do something like, I want to crotch it MIDI, I, I want to crotch it note, then Lilypond, under, Lilypond will do that, whereas MIDI would obviously give you the note on and then the note off message later. Does that so make... maybe it's a little bit more than, because Markdown is really just about formatting. It's just about being able to add bold or put put text into a list in a way that doesn't interfere too much with the because the problem with HTML, writing in HTML, is you add all the tags and it makes it hard to read as a human readable thing. Um, yeah. And that's what Markdown is. It's, a, it's effectively abstracting those tags into a, a, a more concise way of applying formatting to something. But it's not about the actual content itself. I suppose I'm, I'm just wondering, because I was thinking it, randomly it's... today, I was thinking about... Like, is there an XML or an XML-based way of transferring note data from one app to another, for example? That's not what LilyPond is. No, that's it, it isn't, but I suspect it would probably do a reasonably... It, it is actually an intrinsically, incredibly suitable way of doing that if you wanted it to do, to do so. If and that, there is... Sense. Just music XML does exist as a an interchange format as well. Okay, that's yeah. probably what I'm thinking of. A way of describing the actual music rather than the actual display of the music is maybe why I'm getting at. Anyway, we've, I've kind of drawn us off the off the off on a. Oh time. no, into into entirely proper stuff. Well, here let, let me put the the final punchline on the Lilypond story is the really great feature of it. It's an open source project, so. If you want to have a play with Lilypond, you can just go for it. There you go. That's, uh, just, just go take a look online. Um, the, there are links in the, in, the, in the blog post about it. The blog post is actually a good introduction um, to it. Like, um, as, as an illustration, if you understand what the... Um, what was that heading that I read out loud? If you understand what the, what the topics and standalone versus integrated development environments means, then you'll have absolutely no problem using Lilypond. So... That's a, you, you can be certainly very clear about that. And there are lots of really interesting features about it. Like the thing that I find the most interesting about Lilypond is that it is the most it is an incredibly concise format in terms of describing musical notation. Essentially you get two 
you get a letter and a number, and that describes the pitch and the duration of the pitch, which is incredibly two characters is an incredibly efficient way of transferring that information sort of stuff. Which... It looks. Uh, I've just gone to to the post, and there's a picture at the top of it, which is basically, I think, a bit of lily pond code. Yes. And that's what it is, effectively. It looks like code to me, and it's a bit cryptic. But I think if uh, you know, if obviously if you know how to read it, then it's probably probably makes complete sense. I think that looks a bit more uh, involved than Markdown. It, I mean, you could yep. transfer okay. something in this way. Well, it it does. You see, I'm I'm a big fan of Lily Pond, so I'm just gonna I'm playing with you here a little bit. I'm just gonna keep pushing, but it. Lily Pond suffers from the classic, what I call the classic problem, which is that you get a pro, you have, essentially, it is, it has to be a programming language. If if we say that any way that you interact with a computer is a programming, is is in some way a programming language, or or a data format to go into a programming language, and what Lily Pond suffers from is when you have programmers, programmers writing these things, they tend to write in the features that programmers would like in these things. So LilyPond does really great thing. It does really powerful things, like allows you to declare a. It, it allows you to, to declare a set of co a set of nodes as a as a function, and then allows you to reuse the function over and over in the code, and also allows you to do transformations over the function as well. So if you wanted to, you could start with say a musical motif motif that you were going to work with, and you could declare the motif, and then you could use the motif, and to use it, you would just give it just call the name of the just call the name of the of the function that you said would refer to it. But then if you wanted to, you could also say, actually, I'd like every note to be twice as long, in which case you could just run the music, you would just run, you would just call the function, but run a transformation on it, which would double the note lengths. And if you wanted to, you could also transpose it up by three semitones as well. So what, what um, what's really fascinating, though, is that there is a lot of, there is a lot of musical analysis work being done and what they do is they take the score and convert it to LilyPond data, and then they, um, what what do what Adam you'll know this term perhaps. What's the term when you tidy up code? Uh, refactoring. Sorry, that's the phrase yeah. I'm looking for. And then what they do is they refactor the LilyPond code down hard, and what you end up with is an incredibly concise set of definitions regarding the analysis of the music, because you you oh, end up saying. Let's have this. Let's have this, and we transform this like this, and that gets us that. And then we can transform that transformation to get to this. And you suddenly discover that you can express an entire piece of musical work using two or three declared functions and a set of transformations on them, sort of stuff like that. So it's quite. It it is a it is a very weird sort of way of working because when you see, when you see really good Lily Pond, it like when I do Lily Pond stuff because it's probably my typesetter of choice to be honest. When I do Lily Pond stuff, it takes me hours because I type everything out. When I meet somebody who really knows how to do LilyPond properly, it takes them very little time because they're not writing everything out. They're finding the little snippets and then they're doing the transformation of the little snippets. Well, it strikes me, on the way you just explained it there, two things. One is that sounds like a serialist composer's dream. Just being able to take your, ser your, your series of 12 tones and then, you know, reuse it, re retabulate it, you know, do all the processing that a serialist composer would do. Mm. That's quite a narrow thing. But as you said, it's a programming it's a programming perspective. It sounds like it's been made from that perspective because also you explain that to me and I'm like, oh okay, that 
so that's basically a region in a DAW, isn't it? You know, this little seg segment of notes that you can reuse multiple times is a segment in a is a region in a DAW. It makes sense. I think if you're used to that type of composition, it actually makes complete sense of how you can yeah. kind of construct things like that and why it would work very well for Ableton, for example, to integrate into Ableton. There you go. Cool. Well, I hope I've, uh, you know, it's an open source piece of so open source. So if you want to try it out, you can go try it out, see what you think, and, and come back and let us know. Yeah. And I think with that, we've made it to the end of the notes, haven't we? We have indeed. I, I have a quick question for Adam. It's not our traditional question for Adam, because obviously we're still reeling from the shock update last week. <laughs> Logic. Remos, uh... Ad Adam being as a... Uh, being as aloof as possible and giving as little detail as possible, is there a possibility of a Adam Yanch review feature in the near future? Yeah, I think there is. I think there is. Um, I do have a box with a thing in it to review. So, uh, do you think it'd be? Do you think it'd be next week? I I should certainly hope so. I should certainly hope so. Do you have the box to hand that you could just pass across the camera at speed? Can I show? Can I show it to you? Look. <gasps> excellent stuff that tune is original I didn't rip it off from anywhere um, it's creative commons um, Scott you know all the attributions so you can decide what attribution that is fair enough <laughs> it's attributed in some way <laughs> there we go <laughs> excellent stuff so next week there may well be though our regular listeners will know that life changes often and we sometimes you know <laughs> the audio podcast is one of the things that gives when life has to change but there we go so hopefully uh, next week we may have a little review special but between now and then feel free to go back and listen to any of our previous shows and um, if you're interested in hearing more about the time about how to get fake plays on your SoundCloud account, then Show86 is the place to go. Um, that'd be cool. Thank I've you. had a great show. I've, I've had a lot of fun. It's been, it's been a great show. I've been Scott here, and this has been fun for me. I am Samuel Freeman. I'll be back next week. And Yay. I am Adam Yanch. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Audio Podcast Show 116. We will see you again. Bye! Bye! Bye.